0: Pricing the air. We all use air. In various ways, we all use the oceans and the great rainforests. But we don't use them equally. We don't all pay for what we use. This is a problem known as quantifying externalities. And it's an issue on which my guest today, Delia Rothenberg, has significant expertise and some great insights. Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm head of investment at J.R. Hambro Capital Management, and the point of this podcast is to give a new twist to the sustainable investment movement. Delilah is a co-founding partner and the executive director of the Pre-Distribution Initiative, a non-profit organization that helps investors to align their practices with the principles of universal ownership. Delilah, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Great to see you again.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So universal ownership, that sounds like a high-minded, possibly high term, but isn't investment about making money? Tell us all about it. universal ownership and the pre-distribution initiative's role in it.
1: Sure, Andrew. Well, um, we did not come up with the term universal ownership. I believe, um, based on everything that I have read, that it was first coined by Nell Minow and Bob Monks. And since then, it has been written about widely by a number of um, thought leaders in the space and other investors, including John Lukomnik and Jim Hawley, and the Investment Integration Project. And there are a lot of great uh, people and individuals doing work around this concept of universal ownership. Um, Another organization is the Shareholder Commons, very focused on corporate governance. We're really focused on on, um, financial analysis and investment governance. And, um, you know, Before we get into that, I'll answer your question about sort of what is universal ownership and how did it come about and how is it related to investing. Uh, Universal ownership focuses on the idea that a lot of investors are very diversified now. Um, And if you think about the markets and sort of the structure of markets, a lot of investors are uh, much larger too. And so these investors are exposed to every geography, every industry, every asset class. So that sort of makes them like a universal owner. Um, That makes it very difficult to diversify away from systemic and systematic risks like climate change and inequality and biodiversity loss. And so it's interesting when you think about, you know, the ESG movement, Um, and sort of the practice of ESG, if you don't want to call it a movement, maybe that wasn't a great term. That makes it sound political, and it's not political. Um, But if you think about uh, ESG and the tools that we have to integrate ESG, They're largely based on the idea that uh, that financial materiality has to do with idiosyncratic risk of individual enterprises. And so investors, when they integrate ESG, they're looking at uh, whether the environmental, social, and governance risk that they're they're evaluating is going to have a negative impact on a particular company's financials. However, they're not really looking at the negative impacts, the social and environmental impacts of companies. On um, on people and planet that are being externalized, so companies have certain negative impacts and costs that they're externalizing, and that helps the companies have high profits for these investors. So you would think, okay, so the investors are incentivized to not be so concerned about these externalities. They don't they don't want the externalities priced in. But the problem is when you have negative impacts on people and planet. Markets are based on the real economy. The real economy is based on the health of human and natural systems. Investors' portfolios are based on markets. So eventually, the negative impacts that get externalized by these companies are boomeranging back to these large diversified investors or any diversified investor, and that can have a negative uh, impact on returns. And so, you know, where you might be getting strong returns in the short term by uh, focusing on idiosyncratic risk and ignoring the externalities. In the long run, there's a feedback loop where the externalities can boomerang back to the investors. So investors are starting to realize this. They're identifying as universal owners, uh, and they're starting to look for ways to uh, price in these externalities, measure and manage them, and prevent them, because a lot of investors, particularly pension funds with with, um, pensioners as beneficiaries, have an intergenerational fiduciary duty. Uh, Keith Johnson, is a great lawyer in the US, um, who's, who's written about this extensively. They have an intergenerational fiduciary duty. So it's not just other pensioners today, it's the pensioners in the future as well. And so we have to look at long-term risks uh, from these externalities.
0: It's always nice when a, a guest co- uh, calls me out for the misuse of words and apologies for talking about movement when talking about sustainable. But you're quite right. You know, This is about ultimately economic forces that are our part of the real world in which we live. you know, These big pension funds, big asset owners, you know, they're, they're a call on the real economy, but the real economy is supported by the planet and the societies in which we, we live. But just, just this sort of concept about how do we actually marry up the, the short term with the long term? I remember a song by Joni Mitchell where she was talking about how we were trashing the planet back in 1971 on the Blue Album. You know, we've known about a lot of these externalities. We've known about the cost of coal, for example, on health, uh, and, the, uh, and that, what that pressure that puts on the public purse, or tobacco, or other traditional you know, externalities under the e- ESG. How do we actually create the right set of incentives for what we know already to actually be valued and considered by universal owners. Isn't there always that tension between, you know, you you want to be virtuous over the long term, but actually in the short term, it's pretty difficult to, you know, avoid the attractive investment opportunities, even if it comes with those longer term costs.
1: Absolutely. So, at the pre-distribution initiative, as I mentioned, we're focused on um, financial analysis, investment governance, um, and also regenerative investment structure. So, that's the regenerative investment structure is part of sort of where do we want to get to. But I think you really need to start with investment governance, um, and a lot of people talk about corporate governance, like how is a, a company being governed? Governed. But you're asking about incentives for uh, how we allocate capital and how we decide you know what to value and what is risk and that really starts uh, with the asset owners and allocators and For institutional investors, they often have investment belief statements investment policy statements and so um, it's really important for these kinds of investors to to uh, if they if they want to recognize these systemic and systematic risks and act as universal owners, just institutionalize that into their investment belief and policy statements so that they can say this is our fiduciary duty. From there, there's a whole set of other policies and procedures and the way they incentivize their investment teams as well as their corporate governance teams. I think right now what we're seeing in the market is that corporate governance teams have certain incentives related to environmental and social goals. And then the deal teams or the, you know, portfolio managers and analysts have other incentives related to benchmarks, financial benchmarks. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of institutional investors, they, they, uh, Uh, allocate assets into different asset classes, and then they have different teams managing each of those asset classes. And so each of those teams managing each asset class has an idea of what their expected return should be based on historical financial benchmarks and sort of what's going on in the market right now. But unfortunately, historical financial benchmarks don't price in externalities. Our uh, returns have have been based on decades of cheap or free human and natural capital. And so, if we're going to be pricing in externalities in the future, there's a risk that that the returns in the future might actually be lower. And so, how do you manage that if you're continuing to measure performance of the investment teams and their 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 success is based on you know being able to meet or beat a benchmark, beat a benchmark? Um, you know, you're you're comparing apples and oranges with with the the historical returns that don't price an externality with the future returns that are supposedly going to. And i that's something that we're really looking at right now is um, what can change about the way we um, measure success and how that dictates asset allocation. Um, because that's, that's really where a lot of the incentives are coming from. We need to align the ESG and corporate governance teams with the, with the deal teams. Otherwise, the two teams are sending the same company or asset manager mixed messages.
0: Just one of the sort of mispricings of capital that you didn't cover, though. You talked about not pricing natural and human capital correctly, and I definitely agree with you on that. But... Don't you think there's been a problem that we've been mispricing financial capital? It's a huge problem, really, of the last decade and maybe of the last 20 years. And here we are in 2022, with that seeming to come home to, to roost with weak markets, withdrawal of liquidity. How much do you think that um, has exacerbated the situation? And, you know, are we, should we view a potential recession as a, an opportunity for the you know the, the great reset and maybe give human and natural capital more of a chance? Wow. Well, that's profound, that's I know. That's
1: very profound. Um, I hadn't thought about the question in the way you framed it, although it does have to do with one of my favorite topics, which is monetary policy and, uh, and um, interest rates and quantitative easing. Um, you know, in our... In the pre-distribution initiative's working paper, ESG 2.0: Measuring and Managing Investor Risks Beyond the Enterprise Level, we talk a lot about how low interest rates and quantitative easing have made it um, uh, very easy for those who have wealth to borrow and buy up assets and inflate the prices of those assets. And you know, unfortunately, uh, that create that can exacerbate inequality because people who don't have wealth aren't in a position to borrow um, and participate in that investment, um, trend. And so what, what happens is asset prices become inflated and at those high valuations, the barriers to entry to invest become much higher for everybody else. So I, I do think that there has been a mispricing of financial capital, uh, in that sense. And now that we're seeing, um, and we talk about this, we predicted this in the paper that there could be high inflation, um, that there would be some trigger where the central banks, uh, major central banks around the world, would uh, need to tighten monetary policy and pull back. And what would that do to to markets, and what would that do to the real economy? There's been also a lot of over-leveraging of portfolio companies. I, I come from the private equity space, and um, a lot of the large leveraged buyout firms have used significant debt to acquire portfolio companies. And when, when Portfolio companies uh, have too much leverage; then they might not have the resources that they need to offer quality jobs and quality and affordable goods and services. Um, and uh, there's a lot of talk about sort of zombie companies uh, in the economy who just really can't afford uh, their um, their debt service uh, burden. So I think um, as as monetary policy starts to tighten, there there will be some shake out in that space, and uh, it, it just wasn't sustainable to, to overburden companies with so much debt. Um, I am a little concerned that, as we're seeing the public markets downturn, that that's actually a very good buying opportunity for uh, large leveraged buyout um, private equity, and well, for any private equity uh, firm that has dry powder um, and is looking for value. And so we might see more of the markets go private. I don't have anything against private equity. I think that uh, private equity actually, there there are amazing opportunities with private equity where you um, you can have stronger governance with companies and come up with creative regenerative investment structures. And you know the governance can be helpful in terms of more having more responsible company. Um, there's also enormous opportunity to support. Companies with financial capital to help them grow or recover, but um, there is a lot of opacity in the private equity industry, and so um, I think that they have benefited. To sort of circle back, and I've gone on a tangent. Circle back to your original question about pricing financial capital. I think that you know it's just been it's been a very easy time with little accountability for um, the private market space, and. Um, and there's enormous opportunity for the private market space to be sustainable. And I think now that that we're seeing some real pain um, in the real markets, there will be more of a movement to hold uh, investors accountable and have more sustainable investing.
0: Yeah, it's been a, certainly an interesting environment where we've had abundant liquidity. This concept of there being you know the old what they used to call the Greenspan put, and you know, it's gone through various iterations: the, the yell and the Powell put. That maybe it's going to be. Powell put won't be there. But it certainly has created an environment which has favoured speculation, but actually over investment. It's felt like we've had an investment boom, but it's rarely been about you know, investment in fixed capital formation and innovation and efficiency because when, la- you, know, when you don't price labour correctly, when you don't price natural capital, why do you want to be efficient and considerate in that? So I do think there is a role that the financial system as set, set by central bank policy has to play in this. I did upset somebody went at a central bank when they were at a panel where we were talking about climate change. And I said, well, the, the quickest thing to you know, sort out climate change is to end QE, quantitative easing. So they took rather a umbrage at that. But you know, the, we are all part of the system and that's why I get quite obsessed about the incentives in the system, making sure that we are lobbying not just the corporates, but policy makers, regulators, and governments to make the the right rational decisions for the long term. But yeah. maybe if you could sort of you know, segue a little bit to then talk about how we actually try to implement this. You know, one one question that's come up is, you know, is it going to be the accountants or is it going to be the lawyers that, um, you know, that change the world? And you know, here I'm thinking about this, you've talked a lot about this in other podcasts that you've done at the pre-distribution initiative about how to price natural and human capital into accounts so that we can hold companies more accountable for how they use these what have traditionally been called non-financial assets but can be very much financial assets. Um, But also there are the lawyers who can impose changing social norms, the interpretation of the law. Where are you? Who's going to win out in this sort of... King Kong versus Godzilla sort of battle. Are you, are you on the side of the accountants?
1: Oh, I think that everybody's is needed. Um, I was just at a really incredible forum for the future event last night, and they were talking about systems change and how, you know, you have to hit on multiple pressure points in order to see systems change. And so um, I, I find that at the pre-distribution initiative we're we're spending a lot of time on the accounting and the valuation, but I don't think that that's the only answer. Um, we're also engaging a lot in uh, policy and regulatory reform. Uh, I didn't expect us to when I first started, but there is, um, there's movement and we wanna make sure that where that's happening, um, not that we're the ones who can say what's right and what's wrong, but we may as well weigh in with our perspective. Um, and try to, to get the optimal outcome. And, and actually, I would say, it's not even our perspective we're weighing in on. One of the things that we're trying to do is bring together diverse um, stakeholders globally. So not only investors and companies, but also civil society, labor advocates, academics, economists, accountants, bring together these stakeholders to exchange their perspectives on what is good look like and what are the concerns right now, what are the issues we need to address, how could they be addressed? Um, because you need that sort of multidisciplinary exchange, and not just multidisciplinary um, across different subject matters and, and topic areas, but also you know geographically, culturally, um, you know, from from different income uh, or wealth brackets. And so that's what we're really trying to curate at the pre-distribution initiative is, is bringing together a lot of different people to hear from one another, learn from one another, and come up with, back, with optimal outcomes and pathways to those outcomes. Um, so I know that's not a very, you know, it's more exciting to always take a view, um, but <laughs> I, I can't do that right now.
0: I don't know if I will ever. I think you're right to highlight that it's going to take multiple actors pulling in on different levers in the system to change the system. That's the whole idea of system change and system thinking, you know, in in the accountants versus lawyers. I think we need both because the accountants, once they establish the principles of accounting for other forms of capital and other forms of assets, you know, human capital, natural capital, all assets, if we stop seeing them as costs or opportunities and see them as assets, then it can transform how we think about it. You think about it in national accounts, we see education and health as costs, not assets that we give to, to the population that makes them more healthier, more informed, more productive, you know, and sort of, yeah. So I think we can, but once we see the pricing in accounts, then the lawyers can take over because once it becomes a realized and uh, expression of potential value or risk uh, when that gets abused then that's when the legal system can begin to find leverage which we've already begun to see on various climate change initiatives a- around the world
1: I'm totally with you I mean sometimes people say to us why are you focusing so much on voluntary standards or initiatives why don't you just focus on policy and regulatory reform and you know one of our uh, advisors, who I get a lot of inspiration from, John Lukomnik, had has the theory that he's articulated about, and and John, forgive me uh, if I'm I I don't I don't want to misinterpret. It's probably always better coming from his mouth <laughs> than mine. But my interpretation, um, what I've taken away from what he said, he said is, you know. That um, policymakers and regulators respond to their constituencies, right? So um, it is sort of up to markets and civil society to shape what they want to see, and then bring it to policymakers and regulators, um, because policymakers and regulators are—that's—they're—they're they're representing people. And so I do think that there needs to be some movement in the voluntary space in order to then institutionalize it and put it into policy, and that—and that's better too because. Um, through that path, you you have a better chance of avoiding unintended negative consequences because people will sort of have workshopped what they want to see and tested it out a little bit before it becomes mandated.
0: I think even Milton Friedman recognized that. So he might have talked about maximizing returns, but it was within the boundaries set by. Civil society, and I think we should always remember that laws and regulations tend to fi- follow civil society, not be the leader of civil society. Which is, you know, an interesting observation. But I was just wonder if you could just give the the audience a little bit of a flavour of what some of the universal owners are doing in terms of actually turning this the, the, these concepts that we've been discussing into a practical asset allocation framework. Of, are many actually being able to make the big leap in the real world with their assets or is it still, are we still a bit at the conceptual level that this is something we'd like to be able to do but haven't quite got the uh, got there yet?
1: I think we're still figuring it out. Um, I think that there are certain asset owners and allocators who are making great progress. Uh, there's there's still that debate out in the market of do you engage or do you divest? How do you deal with transitional assets? So um, I know that that you know commitment-wise, and certainly from the corporate governance teams with asset owners and allocators, great strides are being made. But how do we actually follow through on those commitments? Um, and you know, get to net zero or, um, you know, there are a lot of commitments being made on net zero, but there are a lot of other issues too, like biodiversity loss and inequality. And can we really get to net zero if we don't address those two things? And those aren't really high on the agenda of a lot of asset owners and allocators. So, um, so, you know, I think we're, we're going in the right direction, but we're, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and I'm really grateful for folks like you and also grateful for you, um, and uh, and all, all of our conversations that have inspired us at the pre-distribution initiative um, to keep pushing the industry forward and keep asking the hard questions.
0: Yeah, I think we have to challenge ourselves. You know, I think we all have a you know this sort of a view of an aspiration for a better future, a better world. You know, I would say sustainability is a journey into the future. It's definitely not a current state of being and part of this podcast series is to explore and share ideas from a whole range of different thinkers. So it's been great to have you today. But before we wrap up, you know, I, I, I go back to my old, my sort of rather old-fashioned investment uh, approach and say, you know, bull and bears, you know. So what what are you optimistic about and, you know, what are you you pessimistic about?
1: I'm optimistic that individuals who I talk to in the investment space are starting to recognize that systems change requires a systems approach. Um, I'm, I'm a little, I'm not pessimistic, but I'm a little uh, frustrated that we are still talking in silos in terms of most of the conversation about ESG and sustainability being with corporate governance or ESG teams and not enough integration um, uh, on financial analysis and thinking about investment structures, there's there's also you know one thing that's really central to the pre-distribution initiative that we haven't mentioned is that our ESG and impact investing frameworks look at uh, mostly look at portfolio company operations and our portfolio companies treating their workers well. What are their emissions? Um, are they polluting? But there are negative impacts that come from investors as well, like there's a lot of attention to high fund, high, high corporate executive compensation right now, and is that exacerbating inequality? And is it is it appropriate? Are we are we rewarding for performance? But we're not really looking at fund manager compensation, and fund manager compensation of executives can often be way higher than corporate executives, especially in the large LBO space, or um, you know whether in Leverage by private equity, we're, in certain circumstances, we're over-levering the portfolio companies. And so we need more measurement and management frameworks around that. I'm, I'm optimistic that people are starting to see that, but we're so behind the curve. And so I'm just, the the um, speed of which we're all acting, I'm a little, it, we have to act with urgency, but we also need to, to, um... Be careful and avoid unintended negative consequences. And so, like, getting that balance right is
0: hard. It's back to incentives in the system and making sure they're not perverse and misaligned. You know, I think we do need to go beyond the label. Delilah, as always, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you'd like to learn more about investment opportunities at J.O. please do contact your representative. Details about us, about our funds and our approach to investment are on our website. Uh, Type J.O. Hamro into your favorite search engine and we'll pop up. I'm Andrew Parry. This is Organizing the Future. Thank you for listening.